Well, thank you, Kevin and worship team, and uh, great to see all of you this morning. Thank you for making your way here to Grace Point. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing so, and Merry Christmas uh, to you. I want to first of all thank uh, Nancy Abreu over here for uh, signing for us this morning. Thank you, Nancy, for doing what you're doing. And that's about all the attention I think you want this morning, but uh, we're grateful for you. Yep, I got the, I got the look. <laughs> move on, move on was that look right there. All right. Well, Merry Christmas Eve to you all, and uh, we really are honored to have you all with us. And we, I know, and we know that uh, people uh, this morning especially come from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't been in church for a while, or you're just kind of exploring again, or maybe you're somebody who has left a childhood faith and into your adulthood, you've asked adult questions of the faith that have gotten only childlike answers, and you have walked from something that you were passed on, something that was passed on to you, want to welcome you here this morning and say we understand, and this is what church is for. You're welcome here, and we're glad to have you. Whatever phase of life you are in and whatever level of faith you bring or don't bring to the table, we're glad to have you here. And I hope this morning can be challenging and encouraging for you and that you will feel a warm embrace regardless of where you land uh, in your faith this morning. Uh, One thing you should know, and maybe you have thought about it, but perhaps not in these terms, that I believe uh, that what uh, Stephen Evans wrote in one of his books is actually true, and that is he made the point that Christianity, above all world religions, uh, is dependent upon the accuracy of history for its validity. In other words, if you take all the other world religions, the major world religions, they are not as dependent upon the accuracy of history as is Christianity. For example, if we go back to the beginning of Hinduism, uh, as Evans would write in his book, the historical origins of Hinduism are lost in the mists of time. In other words, we don't actually know where this thing began and how it actually all started, but the religion seems none the worse for the wear as if anyone is actually asking the question, where did it begin so that I can believe it? That's not even the question that you ask. It's immaterial to the religion itself. Take um, Islam, and that is uh, rooted a little bit more in uh, history with Muhammad, but Muhammad's, uh, the revelation to Muhammad is really about Allah, not about Muhammad as much. And so the issue there isn't nearly the same as it is for Christianity. If you want to take Buddhism, the founder of Buddhism, and I'm not sure I'm going to say the name correctly, but Gautama, those who, many Buddhists believe that in order to be enlightened, you don't even need to understand the historical roots of Gautama, because what's most important are the, the uh, timeless truths that, that he uh, spoke on, that he taught on. So who knows, actually, when he was born or what he, where he lived, and it's almost immaterial because the timeless truths carry. Even in um, Judaism, In Judaism, they have strong historical ties, yes, because Jews will believe that there was a God who saved a historical people for a particular purpose in a particular season of time, that God redeemed these people for a particular purpose and continues to work with them in history. But if I were to ask the question, would Judaism survive if Moses was found out to be a fictional character? It's an open question, but if I were to ask you this question, would Christianity survive if Jesus was found out to be a a fictional character? I will tell you the answer is absolutely not. No way in the world would Christianity survive if Jesus did not actually walk the planet. And so I'd make the case that unlike any other world religion, Christianity is dependent upon history being true and its historical origins being true. 
that yes, indeed, people walk into Christianity with the question of, is this true? Where did the founder come from? And can I validate his existence more than any other world religion? But here's the interesting thing. In case you are in the situation where you know someone, or perhaps you yourself have walked from Christianity or just don't quite believe it, here's the interesting thing. Even the most ardent critics of the faith believe Jesus existed. The issue, in fact, isn't did Jesus walk the planet, because that's really not up for discussion. Even the most ardent critics will say that this man existed. The issue is, who was he? That's a fair question. Was he actually the Messiah? Was he the Savior? Was he just a moral teacher? Or was he crazy? That's a fair question. But it's very interesting that the voices of those who believe Jesus didn't even exist are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and very difficult to find and exist only on the far extreme of what is academically robust thinking. The issue for Christians is not only who was Jesus, but I would suggest there's another question, and that is at Christmas time especially, why did Jesus need to come? Why did he need to come in the way that we recognize him here at Christmas time as a baby in a manger? Why did God need to send Jesus, or did he not need to do it? And he just chose to do it anyway. Back in the day, and by back in the day, I don't mean like last week, I mean back in 350 AD, there was a bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, whose name was Athanasius. Now, I am not uh, the most uh, widely read scholar on Athanasius, but I want you to know that this is a real time and place history. Athanasius, the bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, he made the case that it's possible we could think about Jesus' existence in this way and the reason for him to come. Athanasius pointed out that after creation, when Adam sinned and fell from God, that there was a gap that was created between man and God. The question is, how do we fill that gap? How does man return to a relationship with God, which he once had, that he was indeed created for in the garden? Now, if this narrative sounds familiar, it's because it's, this is the Christian narrative. Man is created by God, he falls into sin, and how is he restored? The question is, how do we bridge this gap? One argument could be, why can't we simply say that repentance is enough? Why can't God simply say to humanity, just say you're sorry, promise you'll never do it again, and ask for forgiveness? Why can that not bridge the gap? Is that not what we do with our children? When they offend us, when they do something wrong, is that not what we ask for? What do you say for taking the cookie? And we're waiting for those two magic words, I'm sorry, and then the gap is fixed. Why could God not do that with humanity? Why was repentance not enough? And Athanasius would point out back in 350 AD that the reason that repentance isn't enough is because sin cuts deeper into the nature of humanity. The way he put it is that the transgression brings corruption of the human nature. That it changes fundamentally who we are when we sin. It doesn't just create a gap. Think about it this way. If I were wanting to get for my wife an amazing new diamond ring this Christmas, and who hasn't gotten that for their wife this Christmas, right? That's right. Yeah, we all have, right, men? That's right. If I were in that business and I walked into Zales and I thought, uh, you know what, that 
$25,000 ring over there, whatever the price might be, that looks awesome. And that's a perfect representation of the depth of my love for my wife. We're going into 20 years of marriage here in the new year. So it's a great time to get, let's just call it a $20,000 ring, right? To celebrate 20 years. How about that, right? I mean, who doesn't do that, right? Let's say I had that desire and all of a sudden I saw the price tag and I realized I'm in a situation. I don't have it, but I want it. And so I decide, maybe against my better judgment, to swipe the ring walk out of Zales, and I'm able to do that, and I'm driving home with this enthusiasm and excitement and adrenaline rush of, well, number one, I just stole the $20,000 ring, number two, but now I have something incredible to give to my life. I wake up in the morning, and guilt has wrecked my heart. I'm like, this was terrible. What have I done? My parents raised me better than this. I know this is ridiculous. So I drive back to Zales, and I tell them, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done it. Will you forgive me? What are they going to say? That's right. No problem. Just go ahead and walk on out of here. Nope. No problem. Thank you for bringing this back. Hang on a second. And then arms behind the back, right? Spread them. And we just got, we're taking you downtown in a hurry, even though we forgive you. Because sin changes something about my relationship with Zales. Sin changes something deeper. Sin puts me on a path of judgment. And repentance doesn't take me off that path. Repentance doesn't get rid of the judgment of that path. Repentance simply makes my conscience clean, but it doesn't get me off of that path. Something deeper has changed. And this is the problem that Athanasius pointed out and the problem that we all experience. When we sin and there's a gap between us and God, the only way, the only way to deal with this is not repentance. It's not enough. It needs to go deeper than that. It needs to absolutely go deeper than that. And this is why God needed to send His Son as God in the flesh to break the power of that judgment over us. Because death had dominion. Once Adam sinned, once we fell through him, we were on a path toward death. Even if we repent, our conscience is clean, but we will still be judged. Even if I repent to Zales, I will be clean, but I will still be judged. How do I get off of that path? I need someone stronger than death to get me off of that path, which is why at Christmas time, God needed, needed to send God to this planet to get humanity off of the path toward death. But that wasn't all. God needed to send God, but he also needed to send someone who was fully man to this earth. Another theologian said said it this way, that which is not assumed is not healed. In other words, the things in our human nature, if they are not assumed by God, they are not healed. Meaning, if only God came and didn't bring on, didn't take on into flesh the weaknesses of our humanity, then the weaknesses of our humanity are not saved when Jesus dies. So in one person, this person needed to be both fully God to get us off of the path of judgment and fully human so that the fullness, the totality of our humanity would be saved. And this is why God needed to send Jesus at Christmas time. Now if you're thinking, you may ask this question, can Jesus be fully man if Christians believe that he didn't sin? It's a fair question. And the answer, of course, is yes. Because humanity is not defined by our sin, but humanity is defined by being made in the image of God. 
we are at our core image bearers of God, not at our core sinful bearers of that image. We are made in the image of God. That defines humanity, not sin. So God sends Jesus, fully God and fully man, in the flesh to be born at Christmas time, and he needed to, to get us off the path of judgment and death and break the power of dominion over death, or death over us. Paul, in the New Testament, he wrote these words in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6, 5 to 11. And here's what he said about Jesus. He said it this way, that Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Fully God and fully man in one person. This is how the New Testament describes this baby born at Christmas time that we now celebrate. Now, in this series, we are calling it String the Lights, and I've been in this series now for this is the fourth Sunday in this series, and there's two foundational principles underneath this series. One is joy becomes a choice. It's a choice of yours and a choice of mine. In fact, I admitted to those who were here throughout this series that one of the primary reasons I've done this series is out of personal uh, lack of joy in my own life and the recognition that I don't want to grow much older and have joy not be a growing part of my life. Feeling like if I were to ask my closest friends, describe me with the top five adjectives that you might use to describe me, take all the ones out that would be dumb that they would describe me as, I don't think joy would make the list of top five in my life, to which I said, I want that to change. And I don't think joy will come later when things change. When there's, you fill it in, whatever you might be thinking, when there's more money, when there's more kids, when there's less kids, when there's a new house, when there's a new relationship, when there's a new job, when there's a whatever, 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 whatever is out there that is yet to be here for you, joy will not come later if it doesn't come now. So joy becomes a choice for all of us. Secondly, joy is also found in the darkness. Light only makes sense in the darkness. So joy, even in the biblical sense of the term, is only makes sense when things are hard. You don't, you don't stop and step back at the Christmas lights and look at them and be wowed at them in the noonday sun. They don't shine nearly as bright in the noonday sun. When things are great, joy is expected. Joy shines in the darkness, and it's in that difficult time that joy really jumps as unusual. And here's where uh, what I'd like to say about that point here is that Jesus... <laughs> is our ultimate example of this for us. That when Jesus came and was born, and he grew up, he grew up into some incredible hardship. In fact, his hardship was so significant, it was so difficult for him, that he actually sweated blood, asking his father to take from him the kind of thing that he didn't want to bear anymore. And some of you know that that's when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross. This incredibly torturous death that the Romans created in order to destroy your body and publicly shame you in front of everybody. And as Jesus was prepping for that, this was an incredibly dark time for him. And here's what we see as the author to the Hebrews is writing. And he's writing to new new Christians who are trying to figure out how to go through hardship. And he's encouraging them 
He's encouraging them with the example of Jesus, when Jesus went through hardship. And he actually said that what got Jesus through his greatest hardship and trial was joy. Look at what he says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He's writing to these new Christians. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus rather than our circumstances. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him in the middle of his darkness, for the hope set before him in the middle of his pain, endured the things that was most difficult for him, which is interesting. So let me ask this, if you know someone or maybe you're in this situation and you've walked from Jesus because things have been hard for you, let me, let me ask you to think about it this way. If Jesus didn't walk from his father when things were hardest for him, should that instruct us on how we react when things are hardest for us? I want to be careful not to diminish the difficulty of any of our lives and our circumstances, which I'm sure each of us could have a story to tell. I'm not trying to diminish our stories in any sense. But Jesus was in an incredibly difficult time. And it was for the joy set before him that he continued to walk this path. So here's what the author of Hebrews says to the people who are reading this letter. He says, in light of that, look what he says in verse 3, in light of that, consider him. Consider, put it in your mind, think about, process. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Like, in light of what Jesus did when things were the hardest for him, in light of that, consider what he did. And when things are hardest for you, don't lose heart, don't grow weary. Don't do that. Like, Jesus didn't do that in the hardest time for him. In fact, Jesus said... To, the, to his father, he said, if, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Like, I can't do this. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. But he, but he did. He ended up going. And so, let me put it to you this way. I know many people have uh, walked from the faith or stepped back from the faith, uh, from Christianity, for a lot of reasons other than Jesus. And you may or may not have put it in these words before, but many people leave Jesus or leave Christianity because of the church, hypocritical Christians, pastor, teacher, coach, family member. Many people leave Christianity because they don't even believe the Bible, which is different than Jesus, by the way. Right? The New Testament was composed after Jesus walked the planet, right? So there were people who believed in Jesus before the New Testament was even written, right? So just to separate that, if you don't believe the Bible is accurate, if you don't believe that's true, let me just point out again, that's a different issue than looking at Jesus. Some people walk because they don't think that the Bible is true. Some people struggle with creationism. Some people struggle with how can science and a scientific worldview really um, work in this worldview, in a faith-based worldview. Like it, it's too weak to handle the science and the, the way that we're thinking now. It's too weak. And I'm just telling you, that's like fine if you want to believe that, but it's not about Jesus. None of that is about Jesus. None of that's about Jesus. That's all about other things. Other things that are legitimate and hard need to be talked about. Other adult questions that need to have adult answers. I'm not saying we don't need to answer that. I'm just saying that's not about Jesus. And this is why Paul says, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
don't fix your eyes on, is the Bible true? Don't even fix your eyes on the church. Don't even fix your eyes on fellow Christians. Don't fix your eyes on science. Don't fix your eyes on any other thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who, when he had the opportunity to lose his faith, didn't. When he had the opportunity to walk, didn't. When he had the opportunity to step back, he didn't. And so, fix your eyes on Jesus. and Figure out who in the world he was first. Now, in this series, I'm going to give you a little breather for a minute. In this series, we've been using, I've been using this cup up here and this uh, thing of water, and it's been, been a lot of fun. I'm going to summarize and finish uh, here with you this morning. So we have a, a jug of water, we have a cup right here, and we said in week one that we were designed, made by a, a creator God for joy, made like a cup is made to hold liquid, we were made to hold joy that God puts in and around us, that we are people who are designed for a purpose, and no one would ever question whether a cup is made to do this. This is exactly what a cup is made for. We're made to hold joy. And I made the case that joy is God's design for humanity, to take delight in him and the things that he has made. God has designed us for that. I also made the point in week two that if we're honest with ourselves, that there are holes in our cup that pain pokes into them, that we live in a world of pain and difficulty. We live in a world of sickness, of disappointment, disillusionment, faithlessness, and all that. And so pain kind of pokes these holes in our cup that allows our joy to drain out if we're not careful. And we talked about how we handle that. Talked in there about how misery is, uh, or excuse me, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional, right? And that we can still choose joy, just like James talks about in the book of James, about choosing joy because of what it develops in us, that all of us have holes that are poked in us, and even in the middle of the joy leaking out, we still are to find joy somehow. Last week, we asked the question, if this is dripping out of us and we're losing joy little by little, how is it that we refill our cup with joy? Where do we go? And do we go to build our own cisterns, as we talked about in Jeremiah, or do we look for the spring of living water in what God provides us? And last week, we had that conversation about how God is an endless spring of water, Jeremiah chapter 2 speaks about it that way, and our efforts to dig cisterns, to hold water, and to hold joy for us are ultimately going to create, going to have cracks in them that fall and fail. Now, this morning, Jesus, Jesus is that ultimate refresher, if you will. Jesus is the one who will come, I need to close this back up again so it doesn't leak, who, who constantly fills the cup, even if you, can, if you can imagine this, I don't have enough hands to pull this off, even if you can imagine the holes and the pain still, still coming out, that Jesus continues to be able to pour this life and joy into us. This is what Jesus has promised to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, if whoever believes in me will never thirst again because I'm the spring of living water that from me comes this joy in life that you desire, which is why Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, even in the middle of pain and difficulty. Where do we refill that cup? And for some of us this morning at Christmas time, we have gone through a lot of pain, and I'm not diminishing that. Gone through a lot of hardship, and there have been holes poked in your life. For some of you, that has is, that is poked a hole right in your faith. It's gone. It's leaked out. It's gone. Now, I just want to encourage you around Christmas time. What if you were to look again? What if you were to look again at Jesus? Who needed to come to be fully God and get us off the path of judgment and be fully man to save us in all of our weakness? What if you were to take your eyes back on him for a minute? 
What would that mean for you? What could that do for you? I love the way Charles Dickens puts it. That great author. As he was himself contemplating faith, thinking about what he believed. So, he talked about faith through childlike lenses. And I want to tell you, if you're someone here this morning, you're listening online later, and you've walked from the faith, it can feel very, very difficult. In fact, if the reason you've walked from the faith had been because your adult questions haven't been answered, when I encourage you to give it another run, to step back in and reconsider Jesus, what that may feel to you is like a step back into childlikeness. A step backwards rather than a step forward in your life. Step backwards from what you may have left rather than a step forward into what could be actually true. But here's what Charles Dickens said, and I love the way that he put that. Dickens said this, It is good to be children sometimes, and never better than Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. It's good to be kids again sometimes. To wonder at the miracle of Christmas. And listen to me carefully. I'm not calling you to a childlike intellect or to check your brain at the door. I'm going to tell you what I told you at the very beginning. Christianity, above all other world religions, requires history to be true, for it to be true. So yes, dig into the historical Jesus. We have no fear there. See him. And then you ask the question, who is this man who walked the planet? And why did he need to come? And what does that mean for me? At this Christmas time, I want to encourage you, rethink who in the world this Jesus was. And Merry Christmas. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning gathered together as people from all different walks of life and all different situations, all different contexts. I pray that this morning you would help those of us who need just a moment, a time, a season in life to step back and see Jesus again for who he is, that you would help us to do that uh, well with courage this morning and not to be afraid to look again at him. Give us the insight again and the patience even with ourselves to step back and see this God-man for who he is. We thank you for your kindness to us in sending Jesus to be born in a manger, to be born to save us from our sin. And we thank you that we get to celebrate this great joy of Christmas time, that we get to enjoy this world and the things that you have made and we get to enjoy even these songs that we are about to sing that will come from our hearts and come out of the depth of our soul to sing back to you in words of the best that we can create to tell you how much we love you and how much you've given to us at Christmas time. So Father, we thank you that we can celebrate here this morning together and we thank you again for your love and sending your son Jesus to this planet at Christmas time. And it's in his name that we pray.